All right. You guys doing good? Yeah, yeah, two of you. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, thanks. Somebody? Hey, um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And I know it, it, it feels like we would never get there, but we, are, we have come to our last sermon through the book, in the book of Hebrews. I know. No. Yeah, it has to end eventually. Um, yeah, so we have been, uh, for those of you who have not been with us, we have been going through the book of Hebrews for a while now. Um, and it's been, honestly, like, it's been probably one of my favorite series. That series is? You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's been one of my favorite uh, topics or books of the Bible. There we go. That, we've, that I've preached through in a long time. I hope that it's been helpful to you guys. Uh, I feel like it's been really, really good. Um, but, you know, just to give a little bit of context, uh, for those of you, maybe if this is your first time, or if you haven't been with us in a while, or maybe you're here every week and you just really don't pay attention, that's okay. You should, we still love you. Um, just give you a little bit of background. So the, the book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author. We do not know who this author is. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about who this author is, but we don't know for certain. But we do know a lot about who he is writing to. So we know that he is writing to a group of Christians that have that are, are Jewish. So they were raised in Judaism and they left uh, Judaism and they professed faith in Christ. So, and we know this based off a lot of the things that he says throughout the book, but one of the things that really makes this point clear is the fact that he constantly is referencing Old Testament scriptures and ro- Old Testament passages and all these things that this Jewish audience would have been raised knowing. And what happens is, is that this group of people, due to their confession of faith in Christ, they are experiencing intense persecution. Right? They're experiencing a lot of persecution because of their faith in Christ. And they are getting to the point where they are wearing out and they are considering leaving the faith and going back to their former way of Judaism. That is where they're at. So the author is writing to them, encouraging them not to do so. He's telling them, don't do it. It's not worth it. Don't leave the faith. So for 12 chapters, the author of Hebrews goes into excruciating, painstaking detail to explain to them the hope that they have in Christ. He explains how Jesus is better than anything that they could possibly go back to in their former way of life. Right? He is, if you guys remember all of these things that we talked about, right? He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He has a better message than Moses. He offers us a better rest than Moses offered the people. He is the greater sacrifice. Excuse me. He's our true and better high priest. He is the mediator of a greater covenant, and he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And many have gone before us, and they didn't shrink back, but they kept their faith. They persevered. They persisted. And because of their faith in Christ, so we should also continue to hold fast and persevere. He reinforces all of these doctrinal truths. And there's a few things I want to say here. I want to talk about the, like, doctrine, right? And I've explained this before, but doctrine is just, like, you know, what you believe, right? Like, what you believe, like, as a Christian, right? So there's good doctrine, and then there's bad doctrine. But when I'm talking doctrinal or doctrine, that's what I mean, right? So he reinforces all of these doctrinal truths. And then we get to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, the author is now giving some basic instructions for living. You know, considering all of this doctrinal truth that he's been giving that he's laid out for 12 chapters to his audience now we get to something else and as in and as is the as is the case in most of nearly all new testament epistles right instructions for christian living 
here's the thing. Instructions for Christian living always come after an explanation of truth. Right? So it always is an explanation of doctrinal truth, whether it be the gospel or who, you, who we are in Christ, all these things, right? It's, the, it's basically the presentation of the gospel, and then after that, you have an explanation of how they should respond, right? So it's truth and then the response to the truth, right? The gospel and the truth of Christ is always preached, and then instructions are given as to how we should properly live out uh, the, uh, these principles in our lives, right? And why is that? And here's the thing that you need to understand, is that your position always precedes your practice, right? Your position always precedes your practice. And some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? The alliteration is on point, but I don't understand what that means, right? So you see, everything that you do and that everything that I do, everything that we do for Christ should be in response to the position that we have in Christ. Does that make sense? Everything that you do for Jesus should be out of a response for who you are in Jesus or what Jesus has done for you. See, we practice holy living because we have a position of holiness with Christ. We live a life that is righteous and pleasing to God because because of Christ, we have been counted as righteous and pleasing to God through the blood of Jesus. So you act based on your position. And this isn't just in Christian living. This is in everyday living. We see this all the time, right? Why? Teachers teach. You know, cops cop, whatever, right? right? We see this all the time, that your position dictates your practice. So until you understand your position, right, until you understand who you are in Jesus, you'll never understand your practice. You'll never understand what you do for him or why you do it, which brings me to my first point. And we haven't even gotten to the passage yet, but this brings me to my first point. When we consider the greater context, right, all of this truth, all of this doctrinal truth, and then how do we apply it? How do we practically live some of this stuff out? How should we act in response to this? Here's the thing, is that you and I need to have something that I like to call living in alignment. Living in alignment. Here's what I mean by living in alignment. What I mean is, does the, thing, the, does the truth that you believe align with the life that you live? Does the truth that you profess to believe align with the lifestyle that you choose to live? Because if we're honest, I think a lot of us, you know, I would say that most of us in this room, we do our best, but for the most part, our life probably isn't as aligned as we would like it to be. We consider the greater context of this book, we see that the instructions of Christian living are rooted in the truths that we've been studying over the past several weeks, which is what I, I really want to emphasize another thing here. This is why there is an, a big need for both theology and practicality in your walk with Christ. Both theology and practicality. Now, I'm using a lot of big words, but hang with me. You're smart. I know you can do this, Okay. When I say theology, I'm talking about like the study of God, right? That's what theology means, the study of God, like deep, you know, like theological things. When I talk about practicality, I'm talking about, all right, like what are the practical things of how, like how do you live on Monday, right? And what happens is I've seen a lot of people do this. I've heard a lot of people talk about this idea that theology isn't important. It's all about relationship. That your walk with Christ is all about relationships, so don't worry, don't focus so much on theological views, but focus on the things that are practical for everyday living. Don't focus so much on the deep doctrine stuff, but focus more on the concepts in the Bible of like loving God, loving others, and being selfless, and fulfilling your purpose, and so on and so forth. 
But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that your theology is what fuels all of those things. Does that make sense? See, your understanding of God is going to determine how you love him. Your understanding of how God loves you is going to determine how you love others. Right? So everything, see, your theology is what fuels your practice, right? Your understanding of truth is what's going to be the fuel for what you do. See, your understanding of God is what fuels your obedience and your service to him. And I'm going to be straight. I think this is why so many young people grow up in church and then leave the faith. I think this is why. Because they grow up with Christian rules, but they never understand the theology that fuels those demands. Right? They're always told, this is what you do, this is what you do. But they're never under, they never understand the theology that leads to those rules. And this is a statement that maybe some of you have heard before, right? Rules without reasons raise rebels. Right? Rules without reasons raise rebels. Theology is the reason for the rules. It's the reason for the rules. So here's the thing. I encourage you, study theology. I encourage you to read books that are difficult and complicated. Read books about the attributes of God. Listen to podcasts and teachings about deep things, about who God is and the intricacy of how he has revealed himself to us through Scripture. Because the more you understand those things, the more you will be motivated in your actions when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. A lot of times the reason people don't live righteous lives or lives that are holy and set apart is because they don't know God. And the more you get to know God, the more it will motivate you to live a life pleasing to him. You know, It's like we're asking people to obey a God that they know nothing about. We're asking people to give their lives to to a God that they have no idea who he is. And then we're surprised when they say, no thanks. Story time. When I first met my wife, Kayla, some of you know Kayla, right? When I first met Kayla, we met because we had a mutual friend. We had a mutual friend, his name is Hunter Higgins, and he was putting together a, uh, a, a worship team, right? Uh, those of you who don't know, I play drums. Like, I pretend to know how to play piano, but I'm not that good, right? I play drums, okay? So, yeah, 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 yeah. A man's instrument. No, I'm kidding. Uh, all right, no, there's girls who play a lot better than me. Anyway, right, so I played drums, and Kayla sang, and we didn't know each other, but he just kind of put this band together, and boom, right, we met. Uh, and those of you who know me and you know Kayla, you know that we both, like, love SpongeBob, all right? And I remember when we first, like, we were in the room, and I made, like, an obscure SpongeBob reference, okay? When I say an obscure SpongeBob reference, it's a reference that, like, if you're not, if you don't like SpongeBob, if you're not really into SpongeBob, then you're not going to get it, right? And I made this reference, and I heard her go, (laughs) right? Like, like, in her cute, (laughs) right? I heard her laugh, and then I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. I was like, there it is. You know what I'm trying to say? So, no, but like, but we became good friends, right? And we, we really, we hung out a lot as a group. So it was me, Hunter, uh, um, another mutual friend, Faith, and Kayla, and a few others, right? We all hung out, and it was really good. It was really awesome. We hung out to the point where we got, really got to know each other, but it, then it got to a different level when we started to hang out just us two. And we started to go, uh, we started to do Bible studies at Panera every Monday, 
And yes, it was Bible study, okay? It was. We would meet every Monday, and we would do Bible study. And here's the thing, is that when I was hanging out with her in a group, I knew her at a certain level. But when I got alone and I was and hanging out with her, I got to know her to a different level. I got to know her life. I got to know what makes her tick. I got to know her likes, her dislikes, her family, her history, her background. I got to know all of these different things about her. And the more I got to know her, the more I began to love the person that I was getting to know. To the point to where, to this day, I would lay my life down for my wife. And some of us, when we talk about this idea of our relationship with God, some of you have been hanging out with God in the group of friends. And it's time for you to get alone and really get to know him. Like you're around Christians enough to where you smell like one, you know? But that's it. That's it. And it's time for you to get alone with this God that you profess you believe in and really get to know him. And I promise you, as you get to know him, as you get to know God, as you spend time with him, you spend time in prayer, spend time in your word, you learn about the things that he has done for you and who he says that you are in him because of the blood of Jesus on your behalf. It will motivate your actions accordingly. And you will begin to love this God in a way that you did not know you could. Why? Because scripture says that we love him because he first loved us. And if you don't know how he loved you, then how can you expect to love him? So is your lifestyle in alignment with the truth of who God is? Your actions should always reflect your beliefs. And I believe not only they should, I believe they do. Your actions will always reflect your beliefs. If you're going to preach the truth, then you ought to live in a way that supports what you teach. I've said this before. I get up here and I preach. And my wife is in the room. My younger siblings are in the room. My younger siblings have known me their entire life. They watched how I live at home. And my goal, my aim is to be able to preach from this stage in a way to where I don't feel shame that I'm preaching something I don't live. I want to be able to preach with my own family in the room and they know that I'm at least trying to fulfill what I talk about. This is what I mean when I say living in alignment. Does your lifestyle align with what you profess? Because your actions and attitudes are an overflow of what you have stored within you. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we agree that we have been put on this earth to preach the gospel of Christ to people and to glorify God by making him known to others, then we need to know that there are two parts to this. One, the theology that you preach, and two, the theology that you live. And I will guarantee you with 100% assurance that the theology you live is louder than the theology that you preach. For instance, let's just say that I have a car, and you have, or you're looking for a car. You're in the market, right? You're scoping them out, right? You're trying to find out what's a good car for me. And I say, yo, I got this car. And I encourage you to get the same car as me because it is so reliable. 
It always runs. I've had this car for 15 years. It runs perfectly. It's never sputtered. It's never stopped. It starts every time I crank it. It even like, even when I put the key close to it, it's like, we going now, right? Like, it's so ready. It runs smooth as butter. It is fantastic. And you're like, you know what? That sounds great. Can I actually like go see your car real quick so I can see how it rides? And I say, well, I don't have my car on me because it's in the shop because it wouldn't start this morning. So I had to get it towed. You're like, what? Right? See, everything that I just said about the car is negated by my actual experience. See, what I just told you about the reality of my experience with the car, right? See, it's, it's just totally negated everything that I've just said. Even as, eloquent, as eloquently as I could speak, as I could say it as, as great as I possibly can. Everything I just told you about how wonderful this car is has now been totally made useless because of the evidence that doesn't align with what I said. Well, what is the evidence of the goodness of God? Your life. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you content with God? Which is what we're talking about tonight, contentment. Does your life align with what you profess? Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What, what is the purpose of living a good life? The purpose of living lives you know, that are good and these good deeds is not so people will see your good deeds and glorify you. The purpose is that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because we are witnesses to the world about how good our God is. Now, does your life reflect God in a way that when people see your good deeds, they want to glorify God because of it? Do people see your joy in the midst of difficult circumstances and say, you know what, that's a God worth following because of how joyful that person is? even though I see the difficulty they're going through? Or do you wake up with a hangnail and then you're miserable all day? Can people see a peace that passes all understanding on you? Can people see a joy that exceeds the joy that this world can give? You see what I'm trying to say? Does your life lead people to glorify God or not? I'm sure your speech might. I believe that the part of the reason that people are so reluctant to share the gospel or even believe the gospel is because they're convinced that it has so little power. Because they see so little evidence of its influence in the lives of the people around them or even in themselves. See, if the gospel isn't enough to change you, then why would I think it's, it's enough to change me? Does your practice reflect your position? Does your life reflect what you profess? Now, with that being said, let's look at our passage in Hebrews 12, because for 12 chapters of doctrinal truth about how amazing Jesus is, 12 chapters of the supremacy of Christ over all things, and this is how we respond. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So we talked about this idea of living in alignment. But the second thing I want us to talk about is what are the marks of alignment? How can you tell if you're living in alignment? How, what is the evidence? What should we pursue that shows people that Jesus is worth it? Because remember, what, who is he writing to? He's writing to people who are considering leaving Jesus for something else. And then he just gave them 12 chapters worth of content to explain why Jesus is better than anything you could possibly go back to. So live a life that shows that. So how do we do that? First thing. Keep your life free from the love of money. And before we go any further, I want you guys to know this. Let me be clear about something. This does not say to keep your life free from money. Okay? Just be clear. It says free from the love of money. This does not mean that if you have money, you're a bad Christian. It does not mean that you cannot have money, but don't allow yourself to be chained into loving it and desiring it. Now, what really does this mean? One of the greatest hindrances to a life of a Christian is an unhealthy desire for the things of the world. And let's be honest. We all, including me, to some extent, desire what this world can give us. And at times, we desire what this world can give us more than we desire God because we're sinful people. Let's, you know, we can be honest with ourselves. I think one of the most important things you can do as a Christian is just be honest with yourself, right? Why? Because it's covered under the blood of Jesus. How can you grow if you don't acknowledge where you fall short? We all struggle with a desire for what the world can give us. Just look at all the false teachers today promising health and wealth and prosperity. You want to know why they're so popular? It's because they teach what people want. That's why they're so popular. They teach exactly what people want. That's why Joel Osteen preaches to 52,000 people every week. Because he preaches exactly what people want. People desire what this world gives. What was one of the temptations of Jesus by Satan? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's the question. Why should we be free of the desires of the things of this world? Number one, they won't last. They don't last. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, there are a lot of things in this world that are good and they are not inherently evil. There's some things in this world that we kind of, they kind of get a bad rap- reputation because we use them sinfully, but they aren't bad things, right? Money, relationships, jobs, popularity, these are all good things. These are all good things. These are all things that God often gives to his children to bless them for their benefit and for his glory. But here's the thing. They don't last forever. They are here today and gone tomorrow. And when you die, you don't take any of them with you. So in your efforts to attain these things, do not sacrifice eternal things for temporal things. Do not sacrifice what lasts for eternity for what lasts for 20 years. That's a foolish trade. A foolish trade. 
Don't sacrifice eternal rewards for things that will one day burn up. Mark 8.36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Ask yourself this, is the thing that you are striving for worth everything you're sacrificing to get it? Because here's the thing, it's not bad to strive for things. Remember, it's not bad to desire things. It's not bad to strive for them. But is it worth what you're sacrificing? Some people, perhaps even in this room, are so willing to sacrifice an intimate relationship with God for sports or money or relationships whatever it may be. You take what is eternal and you lay it on the altar of a false god that this world tells you that you should offer it to. Second reason we should not have an unhealthy desire for the things of this world. The second point is that you will become enslaved to those desires. I think it's significant the way that this verse is worded, right? It says, keep your life free from the love of money. See, an unhealthy desire for the things of this world will drag you down and distract you from running your race, like we talked about last week. Does it help you run? Does it keep you from running? We talked about this last week in Hebrews 12, right? Cast off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles. And I have known so many people that have become so enslaved to the desires that had led them to destroy their lives. And people that desire so badly for money that they take jobs that demand so much of their time that they have no Christian community around them and their family falls apart. Why? Because they want money so bad. Their families are falling apart because they're constantly chasing something else. Let me tell you something that you need to know. There is no freedom in the things of this world. This world cannot offer you freedom. Only slavery. What happens is, is that we constantly feel this need to have what the world says is important. And I am the same way. I struggle with this. I'm, I'm preaching to myself. We constantly desire this. The world tells us, if you have this, then you'll be happy. If you have that, then you'll find peace that you so desperately want. Then what, we, what do we do? We strive for those things, and we strive for those things. And eventually, sometimes, you get those things. And what happens? It doesn't satisfy. So many of you in this room can probably relate to what I'm talking about. So badly you want that relationship, that boyfriend or girlfriend. You see, everyone around you has one. Like, everyone around you has a boyfriend. Everyone around you has a girlfriend. So you're like, man, I, I need one. And what happens? You get one, and it's great for, like, 20 minutes. Right? It's awesome. And then what happens? After a few months, you're like, yo, this sucks. Right? You're stressed. You're miserable. You're not happy. Why? Because you strive for something that God didn't have for you in that moment. Or you're trying to find in that person what only God can give you. So we strive and we get these things, but they don't satisfy. So what do we do? We assume it doesn't satisfy because we don't have enough of it. So what do we do? We strive for more. Trust me when I say this. No amount of money is enough money. No amount of money is enough money. 
Everybody who has money wants more of it. And the more that you get, the more that you want. And no amount of love will ever be enough to fill the hole that you have in your heart. Only Christ. Bernard, I cannot pronounce this dude's name. Bernard Barak or Barak. Don't tell him I said his name that badly, right? I know his name's Bernard. We'll call him Bernard. He was quoted as saying this, how much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? Just a million more than he already has. See, we continue searching for more and more, and the target keeps moving, right? The target keeps moving until eventually you become a slave to these desires, and you can't help yourself but chase them. Romans 6, 16, do, not, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, when we are in Christ, we are called to a life of freedom, not a life of slavery. See, when you place your faith in Christ, you are called to freedom. You are free. You're not enslaved. You're free. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Which leads right into this next part. Live your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How do, we, how do we avoid unhealthy desires for things of this world? By being content with what you already have. I've learned that everyone who wants, everyone wants what they don't have, and nobody wants what they do have. According to a 2013 Washington Post survey, I find this interesting, people who live in households making less than $50,000 a year say that an income of $200,000 would make them rich. While people with incomes between 50000 and 100000 say that you need 260000 to be rich. And people making over $100,000 a year say that they wouldn't feel rich unless they were making a cool half a million dollars a year or more. Why? The target keeps moving, right? It's never enough. Contentment with, God, with where God has placed you is incredibly difficult because it's so against our nature, right? It's so against our nature, and so often we look at people that are not content and, and we almost admire them, right? Because we say, like, they have ambition. Like, they have ambition. Like, they're not going to settle for anything less. And here's what I want you to know. You can be content and still have ambition. You can be content with God. You can be content with what he has given you and still, like, have ambition that's healthy, right? So don't say that I'm telling you that you just got to, you know, sit on the couch all day. That's not what I'm telling you, Right? Your parents are like, hey, get a job. You're like, Pastor Mike said I should be content, right? Don't do that. Don't do that, right? Don't, please don't do that. Uh, no, but it's in your effort, in your ambitions, in your things. You know what? Whatever happens, I'm content. I'm going to pursue this, but if I don't get it, hey, God's blessed me. Why? Because I know that God is sovereign over all things, and what he has given me in this moment is enough. See, Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I'm almost done. Hang with me. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Mind you, Paul is writing this while he's in prison. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12. This is a longer passage. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about uh, which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Remember what I said earlier. Remember what I said earlier. The theology you live speaks louder than the theology that you preach. Are you living in alignment? Let me see, what is the reason for contentment? This is the last part. What's the reason for contentment? We, talk, we can talk about being content all day, but why should you be content? Look, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And let's pay attention to the structure of this verse, right? I like to do this, all right? You guys with me? Cool beans. All right. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Check. Got it. Okay. Be content with what you have. Okay. That word for, it's a small word with a big meaning, right? For, what is he saying? Because, like be content with what you have because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, the reason that you can be content no matter what, no matter how much money you have, how many relationships you have, friendships, you know what I'm trying to say, don't be crazy, all right, right? Right? How, how great your relationships are, no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, no, no matter whether your parents are divorced or married, no matter whether you live with your grandparents, your auntie, your uncle, whoever it may be, whether you have a lot of friends, no friends, whatever it may be, you can be content. Why? Because those things come and go, but God says he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. This is drawing back to Deuteronomy 31.6, where God is speaking to, to Joshua into the people of Israel, saying, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. You see, the fact that God is with you, and he will never leave you, should be enough to allow you to be content with him. Let's think about this. The people, these people that he's writing to in Hebrews, right? They're losing property. They're being persecuted in terrible ways because of their profession of faith. But they should be content with what they have because God will never leave them. Now, there's, a, there's two possibilities here. One, either God doesn't fully understand just how bad things are going to be for these people, and he thinks that his presence is enough, and when, in reality, it's not. Or two, God knows the realities of their sufferings. God knows the reality of your suffering, and he knows that his presence is enough. It is enough. You see, when we live in a way that is constantly chasing the things of this world while being a professing Christian, we are proclaiming to the world that it's not enough. We're professing to the world that God's presence is not enough. And I know that that's not what we would intend to do. I know many of you in this room, like, like that is not your intention at all, but that's what we are professing. How can I profess that God is enough? I'm content when God is all I have. Because if you aren't content with only God, you'll never be content with anything else that he'll give you. Never. 
speaking from experience, right? I'm 27 years old. I am far from aged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Right? My knees pop, but I'm not that old. But I will tell you this. I've lived long enough to know that if you're not content with only Christ, you'll never be content with anything else. Everything this world gives you is temporary. It never lasts. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 1715, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So if you're struggling with contentment, then what do you do? You pursue Christ and you get to know him more. Hey, Keelan, where are you are? If you want to hop on the keys, man. Right? How do you know? See, if you're struggling with being content, with so, which so many of us are, right? At some point in your life, you will struggle with being content. What do you do? You pursue Christ and you get to know him more. Because if you're not content with him, the shortcoming is not on his part. It's because you don't fully understand just how awesome he is. So get to know him more. Pursue him. Spend time in the word. Spend time in Christian community. Spend time in prayer. Psalm 37, 4. This is a verse that is quoted a lot. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But I noticed this, right? It says, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So what, if, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then what is the desire of your heart? Him. So if you delight yourself in God, guess what you get? God. And you get more of him and you get more of him and you get more of him. And the beauty of God is that you'll never reach the bottom. And some of you in this room, you don't even have, you, you, like, I'm talking and you're like, what in the world is this dude talking about? And I want you to know that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that contentment that you're longing for, you will not find in anyone else. And if you want to talk to somebody, if you're, if you're interested, you know, hey, like, I, I think I might be interested or I want to see, you know, what that go, you know, hey, like, talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to Jay. Talk to uh, Mikey. Talk to Haley. Talk to Kayla. Talk to, I think Pastor Ethan is in here. Talk to Miss Paige. Talk to Kayla. I think I might have said Kayla twice, right? Like, talk to a volunteer. Talk to me. Because there's nothing more important than you knowing how amazing a relationship with Christ is. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this time. God, I ask that as we leave this place, God, that we would be reminded of how amazing a relationship with you is. God, that we would never cease to be amazed by how fantastic you are. God, no matter how hard life may get, we know that we have a true and better hope that is in you. God, in the darkest valley, we can sing your praises knowing that you are worthy and that we can have fullness of joy with only you. God, I thank you and I praise you in the name of your son, Jesus.